Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you that he is the lover of our souls, that he has shown us that love by dying on the cross for our sins while we were still sinners. I thank you, God, for your word and for the things we get to look at tonight as we study your word. I pray that you would give us wisdom and guidance, that you would help us to see the things you would have us to see and to hear the things that you would have us to hear tonight. May your grace just wash over us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we uh, looked at Abimelech and the sins of Israel chasing after false gods and um, how Abimelech killed all of his brothers and tried to make himself king. And then Joash said, you know, hey, if you guys did the right thing by killing all my brothers, then may the Lord bless you. If not, uh, may you consume each other. And well, of course, they hadn't done what was right, and they consumed one another. Um, we get to chapter 10, and we see uh, uh, Tola and Jair, a couple of other uh, judges, and then in verses 6 through 18, we see the people going right back to what they were doing before, right? This vicious cycle that repeats itself throughout the book of Judges, really throughout the history of the nation of Israel. They would have times where they did really well, and then not so much. And quite often, it had to do with whoever was king. You ever notice that? Um, in the book of Judges, when they had no king and did whatever was right in their own eyes, which is kind of the theme verse of Judges that we'll get to towards the end of the book, um, they only did right when the judge was alive. But when they got under the kings, when they had a good king, well, they did well. When they didn't have a good king, they didn't do well. It, it leads to uh, why John Maxwell says everything rises and falls on leadership. No pressure whatsoever on, you know, John, Pat, and Roy. Um, I just work here. Uh, <laughs> but, um, in that process, though, we, we see that, and we're going to continue to see that cycle. And we see that cycle in our own lives at times, too. Uh, but after God said, you know, you, you're calling out to all these false gods, let one of them deliver you. Finally, when he couldn't stand it anymore, in his compassion and mercy, he could no longer endure their misery after they had actually repented. Uh, at the end of chapter 10, they start looking for someone to lead them in battle. And that leads us to Jephthah as God's choice to be the next judge in Israel. So if you go back to chapter 10, verse 17, it said, The people of Ammon gathered together and encamped at Gilead. Uh, and so remember, Gilead was on the eastern side of Jordan where... Um, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh had settled where the, the, nine, the, other, the rest of the nine-and-a-half tribes settled on the side of the Jordan where God actually wanted them to be. Uh, but these folks decided they wanted to stay over there, and Moses allowed it. Uh, and the children of Israel assembled together and camped at Mizpah. And we'll talk about Mizpah a little bit later. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. 
chapter 11. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty man of valor, but he was the son of a harlot, and Gilead begot Jephthah. Gilead's wife bore sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and dwelt in the land of Tob. And worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. So we kind of get this uh, interesting fella, this Jephthah. Uh, he was a mighty man of valor, but his mother was a harlot. Uh, when his father's wife, when those sons grew up, they said, nope. You can't stay. Get out. And so he did. He left. He makes his way down to Tob, and he begins raiding with some worthless or empty or vain men. Now, this was acceptable in that culture. If you were uh, a Tob at that point was part of Syria. So as long as you didn't raid anybody who was related to you, well, it was just expected. Right? I, I'm not right. They weren't a moral people at the time. <laughs> um, and so uh, you were in one village. It, it, was, it was a legitimate way at that time to make a living. So, you, you know, he was in Syria, so he wouldn't raid Syrian villages. He was a descendant of Israel, so probably wasn't raiding Israelite villages. But he could go over and raid Philistine villages. Or he could go down and, you know, raid on the borders of, of uh, uh, Egypt if he was close enough or or the people of Ammon, or the Moabites. You know, he, he could do whatever he wanted, as long as it wasn't his own people. That was culturally acceptable at the time. But because of this, he became a mighty man of valor. And the worthless men that followed him around, they were apparently pretty good at what they did. Uh, something to keep in mind, and I already mentioned this, was that Tob was in the area of Syria. So Jephthah did not grow up, at least once he was a little older. In Israel. So maybe they kicked him out when he was a teenager. Maybe he was a little older. Maybe he's a little younger. I don't know. Um, but he didn't grow up in Israel. So that meant uh, he didn't grow up being taught the law. He didn't grow up with the sacrifices of Israel. But he grew up in a pagan culture. And if you know the story of Jephthah or the account of Jephthah, you know that's going to become really important a little later on. I do want to point out that this is the man God chose. Right? And to say that Jephthah had a sketchy past, well, that would be putting it mildly. Right? Born of a harlot. Well, we there's harlots in the, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Uh, rejected by his family. A less than ideal upbringing but also by his actions. He made his living by being a thief, possibly even a murderer. Uh, right? So this is, this is not super, right? He wasn't raised in the church. He didn't grow up with parents who showed him veggie tales, like all good Christian parents do, or read the Bible in the home, or pray together. Right? That, that's not, that was not Jephthah's upbringing. But God used a man who was rejected by everyone else. And that brought to mind Matthew 5, 11 to 12. Blessed are you 
when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And the reason I thought that is because we should expect to be rejected by the world. We should expect to be looked down upon when we live according to God's standards and not men's. It doesn't matter if we're rejected by men. It doesn't matter what the people, the opinion of the people around us or the opinion of the culture around us is. What matters is that we do what God tells us to do. And when we do that, our past, maybe even our present, our upbringing, our family, none of that matters anymore. All that matters is that we're following Christ. So pick up in verse 4. Right? So Gilead is about to go to war with the people of Ammon. And so it came to pass after a time that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. And that's kind of verse 17 and 18 in chapter 10. And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Oh, now he's useful. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our commander that we may fight against the people of Ammon. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, do you not... Did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, This is why we have turned again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. And Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. So the people come back, and they're, Jephthah, Jephthah well, we need help. Of course, your family, we love you. <laughs> um, he goes, you, you threw me out. You didn't want me. You, you got rid of me. Oh, now you're in trouble, right? Now you're in distress. Now there's a problem. And you know I have a particular set of skills that might be helpful with this problem. Now you want me back. And Jephthah being very, I, I don't blame him for what he said. What do I get? Right? What do I get? If I come back and I risk my life for the people who turned me out, what do I get? Oh, you'll be head over all of us. He goes, I think you're lying. How do I know that after I fight for you that you'll actually do this? And so they said, the Lord be witness between us. So then he takes them all back to Mizpah and speaks all of these words again at Mizpah. Now Mizpah was a special place, wasn't it? You guys remember what Mizpah is? Back in the book of Genesis, particularly in chapter 30 and 31, that general area of the book, Jacob had worked for Laban for 20 years. He'd gotten Rachel. Well, he got Leah first. Then he got Rachel. Then, then they gave him their handmaidens and had himself a bunch of kids. And Laban, his father-in-law, essentially kept stealing from him and lying to him. Uh, Laban, right, was, was not a nice guy. He was a thief and a liar. Uh, 
Thieves and liars tend not to be nice people. So at some point in time, Jacob comes to his wives and says, I'm tired of your dad. <laughs> Essentially. How many sons-in-law have said that throughout the history of the world? But I'm tired of your dad. He keeps changing my wages. He keeps stealing my money. And the daughters look at him and he said, he spent our dowry. So we've got nothing left here. Do whatever the Lord tells you to do. So they left. Now they were three days journey from Laban. So by the time he found out, it had been nearly a week. Laban was unhappy that they took off. And so he chases after them. Finally catches up to them and Laban goes, what are you doing? And Jacob says, well, I left because I figured you'd steal everything that was mine. Right? That's kind of the, that's the message Bible version of, the, uh, of that account. And then he says, well, and it's not bad enough that you left, but you stole my gods. Rachel actually stole the idols. And then there's, there's a whole big to do about that. Well, at the end of the thing, they make a covenant with one another. That Jacob won't come back, basically, without Laban's permission. And Laban won't chase after him. They do this in Genesis 31, 49 at a place called, that becomes called, the name becomes Mizpah because of what they say to each other. And what they say to each other is, may the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. And uh, that's a real sweet statement. Oh, may the Lord watch between you and me when we're absent from one another. But that's not what it meant. Basically, what it meant was, I trust you about as far as I could spit into the wind. And I know that you really don't trust me either. So when, we're not, when I can't keep an eye on you, God's going to keep an eye on you. Just you remember that. That's what it meant. And so this is why Jephthah took them back to Mizpah to swear. Right? You, now you've made this promise before God, so if you don't follow through, God's going to deal with you. Fair enough. And I think it's interesting, and, and, and we talk about this, because I think the Lord, when he said, you know, the Lord be witness between us, that the Lord is witness to everything we do in our lives. The word there means to hear, be attentive to, and understand. He's the witness. Now, I think for some people, or even for us, this can be a little terrifying. When that means that there's no sin, trespass, idle word, temper tantrum, Right, I'm 45. I still throw temper tantrums every now and then. That God doesn't see. At the same time, it can be a great comfort. Because he already knows. So we might as well confess our sins and be forgiven. And he's always with us. He's always for us. He's always watching us. Nothing escapes his loving eye. I love that. Psalm 73, verse 28, says, It is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. Uh, the New American Standard translates this in a slightly different way. It says, As for me, the nearness of God is good for me. I love that. The nearness of God is good for us. We should remember that. We pick up in verse 12. Verse 12. 
Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, saying, What do you have against me, that you have come to fight against me and my land? The king of the people of Ammon answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt, from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now therefore restore those lands peaceably. And Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel didn't take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when Israel came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, Please let me pass through your land. The king of Edom would not heed. And in like manner they sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained in Kadesh. And they went along through the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom, and the land of Moab came, Moab, sorry, and came to the east side of the land of Moab, and encamped on the other side of Arnon. But they did not enter the border of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. Then Israel sent messages to Sihon, king of the Amorites, Please let us pass through your land. And Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through the ter- territory, so he gathered all the people against, or together, sorry, encamped in Jahaz and fought against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sihon and all the people to the land of Israel, or to the land of Israel, into the hand of Israel. I should slow down. And they defeated them. Thus Israel gained possession of the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. They took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to Jabbok, from the wilderness of the Jordan. And now the Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Should you then possess it? Will you not possess whatever Shamash your God gives you to possess? I love that little little goading and and mocking. Um, So whatever the Lord your God takes possession of before us, we will possess. But now, are you better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? While Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its villages in Aror and its villages and all the cities along the banks of the Arnon for 300 years, why didn't you recover them within that time? Therefore, I have not sinned against you, but you wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words of Jephthah, or the heeds the word, did not heed the words which Jephthah sent him. So Jephthah sends word to the king of Ammon. Ammon I like this. What's up? Why are you attacking us? Ammon says, give me my land back. And he goes, it ain't your land. And he points out first two things, really. He points out two things. First, we possess this land because your ancestors refused to help Israel. And then they attacked Israel unprovoked when they were on their way to the land. Right? We didn't have to possess this land. If they wouldn't have attacked, God wouldn't have delivered them into our hands. Second, um, I lost my place. Jephthah points out that God had given them this land so it was theirs. I do want you to note Jephthah's accurate account of history. So even though uh, he at least grew up part of his life in Tob, at some point in time he learned the history of his nation, which is always wise. But he had learned his history. Um, there were parts of what he said that were actually direct quotes from the books of Numbers and Deuteronomy. So, I mean, the man knew something. We should have studied the book of uh, Leviticus a little more, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But, um, but basically, he said, God gave us this land, so it's ours. You can have whatever land your God gives you. 
Now, shamash, um, the, the word means either destroyer, subduer, or fish god. So I, I am not sure. Uh, I did a little research. They have one tablet where the name of Shamash is repeated, um, but they're not exactly sure what the idol looked like. They, as far as I could find, um, they haven't found an example. I'm kind of curious if he was a fish. Um, the worship of Shamash involved human sacrifice, and the false god was related to the sun, big ball of fire in the sky sun, um, as were many false gods at the time. So Jephthah then goes on and points out, hey, Balak didn't even try. Yeah, he hired Balaam to try to curse us. He sent in temple prostitutes to make us stumble, but he didn't actually even try to attack us. Then he said, you had 300 years. And that was since the time Moses had originally defeated Sihon and Og. Um, well, God defeated them, but Moses was in charge at the time. Um, it had been 300 years. You had all this time to try to take the land. Why did you wait till now? So in the end, he goes, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything wrong. You're the ones that are wrong. And God, the righteous judge, he's going to take care of this. So I, I appreciate his faith. And the king of Ammon refuses to listen. Uh, what I would like to point out, Psalm 95, verse 7 and 8. Um, this is actually quoted in Hebrews chapter 3 that we're going to talk about on this upcoming Sunday. Um, that the king of Ammon refused to listen. Psalm 95, 7 and 8 says today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. See, it's so important that we don't harden our hearts to the voice of God. Whether that's through the scripture or the still small voice or the circumstances that he's placing before us, whatever it might be, it's just so important that we don't harden our hearts to the voice of God. Verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he advanced toward the people of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver the, Lord, the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So Jephthah advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he defeated them from Aror, as far as Minith, 20 cities, and to Abel Karaman, with a very great slaughter. Thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. So Jephthah gathers his military from Gilead and Manasseh. He takes a stupid vow or makes a stupid vow that we're going to talk about here in just a minute. Uh, then he thoroughly defeats Ammon, and they become subdued under the hand of Israel because of God's favor upon them. So that takes us to verse 34. When Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him, with timbrels and dancing, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me. 
For I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. So she said to him, My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, the people of Ammon. Then she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone for two months, that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my friends and I. So he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months, and she went with her friends and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. And so it was at the end of two months that she returned to her father, and he carried out his vows with her, which he had vowed. She knew no man, and it became a custom in Israel. That the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Japheth, or sorry, Jephthah, the Gileadite. So when Jephthah gets home, the first thing to meet him out of his house is his daughter, dancing, playing a tambourine, celebrating her father's victory. And he laments because of the vow he made. Now we have to ask an interesting question. Who was he hoping would be the first one out the door? Yeah, was he hoping maybe, maybe the dog came out the door first? Was he hoping maybe his wife came out the door first? I don't know, maybe he didn't like his wife. Um, was he hoping know, maybe his brother lived with him and he was hoping to get rid of his brother? We don't know what he was hoping for, but it was his daughter. And, and the scriptures make it very clear that this was his only child. Not just his only daughter, his only child. He had neither son nor daughter besides her. So she hears this, and you've you got to love the daughter. Oh, my father, if you've given your word to the Lord, do to me according that has come out of your mouth. Whoa! I'd be like, what you talking about, Willis? I, I think one of my daughters would be like, uh-uh, you're an idiot. I'm not doing that. <laughs> and you would have the right. I wouldn't even be angry about it. Um, she says, do me a favor, give me two months to bewail my virginity. Uh, sounds like a band name. Um, and essentially, it's because she had never been married or had kids. So he grants her this time. Then the Bible says when she gets back, he carried out his vow, creating the tradition among Israelite women to spend four days lamenting over Jeff, his daughter. So let's explore this a little bit. The first question we have to ask, did God command Jephthah to do this? No. As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy 18, verse 10, God commands the exact opposite. Child sacrifice is forbidden by God for the Israelites. So not only would he not expect Jephthah to do this, for Jephthah to carry out this vow of his would have been a violation of God's law, disobedience to God. And so if Jephthah did indeed kill his daughter, it was not at God's command or with God's blessing. Hold, well, hold your questions. Now remember, Jephthah grew up in Syria. He grew up in a place where Shamash was their god. Remember, Shamash required, didn't, I mean, but they thought Shamash required human sacrifice. So for Jephthah, culturally, this was acceptable. Not according to God's law, but according to culture. Now, just because something is acceptable in the culture doesn't mean it's right. Just because something is legal doesn't mean it's right. Um, so if he did indeed kill this, his daughter, although it would have been an abomination to God, 
It would have been part of his cultural practice and heritage. So even though he knew the history of Israel, this does show us that his knowledge of God and his knowledge of the law were incomplete. It doesn't make it right. It helps us understand. Uh, Something interesting is that in Leviticus 27, you could redeem a person from a vow. So if Jephthah had known that, uh, you can go back to Leviticus 27 and look it up. I didn't write it all down. But depending on the age and gender of the person, there were different amounts of money that you could redeem a person from a vow. So if, uh, you know, his daughter was of childbearing years, um, and so she would have cost X amount of silver coins that would have gone into the temple to redeem her. He clearly didn't know that. Um, This is why it's so vital for us to know and understand all of the word of God. If we pick and choose and only believe the things that we like, and we take things out of context to make them fit the meaning that we want, we're going to end up deceived. We're going to end up misled because we have an incomplete knowledge of God's word. There's a t-shirt that exists that I really want. It says, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. Right? We love Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But if you go back and you put it in context of what Paul is talking about, right? it doesn't apply to sports. It doesn't apply to finishing a project at work. Right? It applies to knowing how to be abased or how to abound. It applies to knowing how to trust God in any situation. Now, is it wrong to put it on the side of a football helmet or something like that? I don't think it's wrong. But be careful when you take a verse out of context because you can make it mean anything you want. Hosea 4.6 says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. It was true in Hosea. It's true today. Next, some people make stupid vows. I didn't mean to look at you, Aaron. I wasn't like saying some people. No, uh, but some people make stupid vows. And if keeping a vow would cause you to sin, then you don't have to keep that vow. Think of Saul. This is back in 1 Samuel 14. And it's a, it's a wonderful account. I absolutely love it. Jonathan wakes up one morning and he looks over at his armor bearer, right? They were fighting with the Philistines, which was very common uh, during Saul and then David's time. And, and Jonathan looks at his armor bearer and he goes, uh, I wish the armor bearer was named. It would make it more fun to retell this. Uh, but we're going to call him Bill. So Jonathan looks over and goes, hey, Bill, it is nothing for God to deliver with many or deliver with few. And Bill looks back and says, yeah, do whatever's in your heart. So Jonathan says, great, we'll go over. And if they say, we're going to come down and show you a thing or two, then, you know, God hasn't delivered to us. If they say to us, come up and we'll show you a thing or two, then God has delivered them into our hands. So Jonathan go over there. They, they get the right sign. They run up the hill and Jonathan and Bill wipe out 20 or so Philistines like that. The Philistines are like, ah, you know, because they don't know what's going on. And, and chaos ensues and Jonathan and Bill just go at it. They're like, and Saul and the rest of the army goes, oh, there's something going on with the Philistines. Oh, there's confusion. Let's attack. The enemy is confused. And so they go over there and attack. And Saul makes a foolish vow. He said, if anybody eats anything today, they will die until the Philistines are wiped out. Well, Jonathan wasn't there, was he? 
Jonathan was already over on the other side of the hill. Jonathan was already doing his thing with Bill. And in the midst of the battle, Jonathan was weary. As I imagine if you're swinging the sword and killing Philistines, it'll make you tired. Well, he sees a honeycomb. He sticks the end of his spear in the honeycomb, eats a little bit of it, and is refreshed and continues fighting. Well, at the end of the day, basically it comes out that this happened. And Saul wants to kill his own son. Saul had issues. And the people go, "Uh uh-uh, your vow was dumb. We're not killing Jonathan. (laughs) So they disobey him. Right? Because if you make a bad vow, you don't have to keep it. Now, here's the reality. We don't have to keep a vow that would make us sin, but ultimately, we don't have to make vows at all. And how many times, I know I've done it, right? I'll raise my hand. How many times have we done, God, if you'll just do this, then I'll do that, I promise. Or I promise this is the last time I fall into this sin. Or I promise this is the last time I get angry at pickleball. Or I promise, right? I've never, I haven't made that promise. I know better. Um, right? Do we have to do that? We don't have to do that. God is merciful. He's gracious. He's loving. He's kind. He wants to bless us. We don't have to make vows. We don't have to make promises that we're not going to keep. And then Jesus actually told us not to do it. He says in Matthew 5, 33 through 37, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. Which you should. If you make a vow, you, you really should follow through. Unless, of course, that would make you sin. Jesus goes on, But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for this is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. This was before hair dye. But even so, let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Jesus says, you want to know how to get out of it? Just be honest. If you say yes, mean yes. If you say no, mean no. Be done with it. I swear. If you're an honest person, you don't have to do that. Right? Remember what Mark Twain said? If you don't tell lies, you don't have to remember anything. I've always loved that quote. Now, let me get you a second possibility that some commentators throw out there regarding Jephthah and his daughter. The second possibility is actually that Jephthah did not kill her. That in order to fulfill his vow, she remained an unwed virgin for the rest of her life. There are commentators that suggest that because of one little lie, line, sorry, right? In verse 39, it says that she returned to her father and he carried out his vow with her, which he had vowed, she knew no man. Right? So it's those four little words, she knew no man, that makes some commentators think that instead of him actually killing her, she just never got married and had kids. I'm not sure which one it is. I kind of want to lean towards the second one. It just makes me feel better that Jephthah didn't kill his daughter. (laughs) Uh, I want to lean towards that one. Um, But to be honest, I think he probably killed her. But this is just a possible explanation. Whatever the case, God did not ask Jephthah to make a vow. He had already promised to deliver Israel. 
God did not command human sacrifice. He, in fact, commanded them to not make such sacrifices. And God did not expect Jephthah to keep this vow. And he even provided a way out of it in the law. If Jephthah followed through and he actually did kill his daughter, it was against God's will and it was sinful for him to do so. It was wrong for him to do so. Right? So that takes us to chapter 12, verse 1. Then the men of Ephraim, now remember, this has happened before. The men of Ephraim gathered together, crossed over the Jordan, toward, or crossed over, sorry, toward Zaphon, and said to Jephthah, why did you cross over and fight against the people of Ammon and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you with fire. These are relatives, at the very least it's cousins of some sort. And remember, Ephraim did this to Gideon. Remember? few chapters back why didn't you call us out to war now Gideon was a little bit of a politician and he said oh no no what you guys did was so much better than what I did yeah I wiped out 120,000 people with 300 guys but you got to pick off the stragglers that was much better and the Ephraimites were like oh yeah that sounds about right so the Ephraimites come back they do it again Jephthah different kind of guy not like Gideon Grew up in a different culture. He made his living by thieving and murdering. <laughs> so Ephraim comes up and says, well, we're going to burn your house down. Jephthah looks at him. My people and I were in a great struggle with the people of Ammon. And when I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. He goes, I did call. You stayed home. So when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon. And the Lord delivered them into my hand. So he gives God the glory, which is good. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Now Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, you Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. The Gileadites seized the fords of Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. And when any Ephraimite who escaped said, let me cross over, the many men of Gilead said, are you an Ephraimite? If he said no, then they would say to him, then say, Shibboleth. And he would say, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. And then they would take him and kill him at the fords of the Jordan. There fell at the time 42,000 Ephraimites. And Jephthah judged Israel six years, and Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried among the cities of Gilead. I love this. I, I don't know why. I just I get a kick out of it for some reason. The Ephraimites did this with Gilead or with Gideon, and, and he placated them. They come and do it with Jephthah, thinking, "Well, we'll just we'll just bully Jephthah around." Well, Je Jephthah wasn't to be bullied. He goes, "What's your problem? I called you out to war. You didn't come. Now you want to fight? Fine." And he kills forty-two thousand of the Ephraimites in this little civil war that they have. Now we got to talk about the Shibboleth, Sibboleth thing, because I just I get such a kick out of this. Um, so they go back and they take the fords where you could cross the Jordan River. Uh, the Gileadites did. And whenever somebody would come up, they'd say, are you an Ephraimite? And if they said, well, of course not, fine, say Shibboleth. And for some reason, the Ephraimites couldn't. They would say Sibboleth. They couldn't get the H in there somehow. And so then they would know and they would kill them. Now, this is interesting. Do you know any, is there anybody in your life who can't pronounce a specific word? Yeah. Right? We all know people like that. For example, my beautiful wife cannot say the word tour, right? A band is going on tour, or we're going to tour the museum. No, she says tour, 
For some reason, she can't put the R on the end. I think it's hilarious. I have made fun of her for it for 29 years. Um, she, she, can't, she just can't say it. Neither, yeah, neither can your mother. Oh, yeah, aluminum. All right, people, people have problems saying words, right? Listen to me. Try to pronounce these names, uh, right? People have problems saying words. Um, what was really funny is the first time we, we went to Paris, we tried to learn French. <laughs> right? We could memorize some of the vocabulary, but when it came time to actually saying the words, we just, we just couldn't. And it would be hilarious. We would walk in into a restaurant or something when we were there. Oh, bonjour. Hello. <laughs> All right. They knew, they knew we weren't French. And they knew we were silly Americans trying to speak French. And they would immediately start speaking English to us um, as a sign of mercy. Uh, and probably because they wanted our money. Um, but this is what happens. Uh, the shibboleth, sibboleth thing. And... Uh, so they wipe out 42,000. Jephthah is a judge for six years. Now, some commentators suggest that Jephthah probably wasn't a very old man at this point in time, right? Maybe he was in his 20s or 30s when he became judge over Israel. Uh, but why was he only judge for six years? Well, some commentators think that this had to do that he actually did carry out the vow and kill his daughter, and it took such a heavy toll on him uh, that it shortened his life. Now, we don't know for sure. We won't know till we get to heaven. And uh, when we get there, I'm not sure we're really going to be ask, asking about Jephthah. I don't think that's going to be the first thing on our minds, but uh, we can worry about this some other time. Verse 8. After him, so after Jephthah, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons, and he gave away 30 daughters in marriage and brought in 30 daughters from elsewhere for his sons. Um, guy had 60 children. Well, Gideon had 70. Um, convenient that it came out 30 and 30. He judged Israel for seven years. So Ibsen died, and he was buried in Bethlehem. And after him, Elon, not Musk, right? Uh, the Zebulonite judged Israel. He judged Israel for 10 years. Elon, the Zebulonite, died and was buried in Aijalon in the country of Zebulun. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the, that guy, the Pirithonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 young donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirithonite, died and was buried in Pirithon in the land of Ephraim in the mountains of the Amalekites. So we get these, three, these next three judges, um, uh, 10, 11, and 12, actually, because uh, 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 Samson is the 13th judge of Israel. Um, so these were uh, 10, 11, and 12. Ibzan, seven years. Elon, 10 years. Abdon, eight years. Talks about their sons. Talks about their daughters. Ibzan did something that he was commanded not to do in giving his daughters away to foreign peoples and taking daughters for his sons from foreign peoples. That's implied in the text, even though it's not said specifically. Um, one thing, we, we get these brief definitions. It's no, worth noting, though, that the judges were coming from different tribes in Israel. Because originally, God did not one, want one tribe to rule over the rest. God did not want one tribe to be in control of the nation. Now, when they demanded a king, eventually that did fall to Judah. But that was not originally part of God's plan. So as we close, I do want to say, I like what Jephthah said. That he opened his mouth before the Lord and couldn't go back on it. 
Now, even though it was making a foolish vow uh, in regards because it became applied to his daughter, um, I can appreciate his desire to maintain integrity and to do what he said he would do before the Lord. Now, we have opened our mouths before the Lord. If you remember on Sunday, we talked about this because we have confessed Jesus as our Savior. And in confessing Jesus as our Savior, we have committed our lives to following him. Maybe we've opened our mouths before the Lord in some sort of our promise. I, I highly recommend not doing that. But whatever the case, I pray that God would give us the strength and grace to do those things which we have committed to do. If we've committed ourselves to be a follower of Christ, we need his grace and strength to continue being followers of Christ. Can't do it on our own. Next week, we could dive into the account of Samson, the 13th judge. Um, but in order to get through the entire account of Samson, we would have to get through four uh, fairly beefy chapters of the book of Judges. And the two weeks after that, one will be at camp, and the week after that, um, well, I'm on vacation, kind of. <laughs> um, and so we're not going to have Wednesday night those two nights, and I don't want to start Samson take a two-week break, and then finish Samson. So next week, we're going to do something special. I think John has been voluntold that he's, he's going to bring a message for us next week. Um, I don't know what it's about. It'll be a surprise. might even be a surprise to John. I don't know if he already knows uh, what he's going to talk about. Um, but then the two weeks off, and when we get back from camp and vacation, uh, I think it'll be July 13th, we will pick back up in the book of Judges with Samson. If you just can't wait, feel free to read ahead. Uh, until then, let's pray. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for the examples you give us in Scripture. Father, oftentimes they are examples of what not to do. May we have ears that hear and not harden our hearts, but listen to these examples. Sometimes they're great examples of what we should do. May we have your grace and strength to follow those examples. Thank you, Father, that you've chosen us. I know I have a sketchy past, and you use me anyway. I still don't know why, but I'm very grateful for it. And I just pray, Father, as we continue on our week, give us your grace, your wisdom, your guidance. Help us to live the purpose that you've put in our lives, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.